Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have our very special guest here, Dr. Graham Cable. Dr. Cable, welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Okay, so Dr. Cable, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, sir? Sure. Um, well, you've done me the honor of uh, introducing me by my title, but, you know, Graham's absolutely fine. I, I was born little old Graham Cable some uh, many years ago now. I won't say precisely how many. Near where I'm sitting here in uh, Whitstable in Kent, southeast England. Um, and we'll get into the detail, but, uh, you know, grew up around here, went to university, ended up in the army, first half of my career in the army. Um, sadly ended prematurely let's say by by illness again we'll come to that um and now find myself in in academia um which i'm also loving and again we'll talk about that so that's a very abridged version of what we're going to go on and talk about and and, and perhaps why i'm talking to you now a veteran now finding myself in academia beautiful beautiful excellent and that's why you're a perfect fit for for an episode sir so graham uh looking into a little bit of your background I noticed you had, uh, I noticed like myself, we, we can stand in solidarity on several things. And one of those being, uh, we both have undergraduate degrees in Spanish. Absolutamente. <laughs> That's so exciting. <laughs> so, puedo preguntarte, señor, ¿por qué quiere estudiar el español? Pues, empezó el asunto cuando tenía ocho años. Es que... Uh -huh. mm, según creo yo, no tengo ninguna conexión española en cuanto a familiares ni nada así, pero mi familia inglesa conoció a una familia española hace ya muchísimos años. Y yo con ocho años fui a un pueblo escondido en Andalucía, en, en el sur de España, donde no había ningún otro inglés, aparte de mi familia. Sí. Y empecé a hablar con los amiguitos ahí, los españoles, empecé a aprender un poco de español y desde entonces quería, siempre quería estudiar español y seguir viajando a España y luego a, a Latino, Latinoamérica, México, vale. hasta Argentina. Y nada, es que me, me fascina todo ese asunto hispano, el mundo hispano, digamos, y, y, y no me deja de... de de ser, de estar interesado en eso. Qué emocionante, qué emocionante, me encanta. Y yo también. Y, ok, so I'm going to tell the listener. So, <laughs> what Graham was talking about was uh, he and his family went to a, a small village in Spain um, and he didn't know anyone who was speaking English outside of his family. So he made friends. And this, uh, in a nutshell, kind of ignited your, your love for, for the language and the culture. And uh, he spent time in Spain and also traveled and lived in Mexico and traveled all the way down to Argentina. And so this really sparked your interest. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, I, similar for me, I wasn't, I, I had never traveled to a Spanish-speaking country until I was in the Marine Corps, actually. And then uh, my time in Spain, in, uh, in Rota a couple times, mm. and then in the Canary Islands, and then in uh, Palma de Mallorca. Yeah. Uh, really, when I got out and went to college, I was trying to just get the skills that I thought I needed to get back to Spain. Well, that, <laughs> that sounds like the story of my life. So you're absolutely right. We, uh, we have a connection there and we'll continue this discussion, I'm sure, in the future. Um, absolutely. But I'll, I'll come to that. Yeah, it, it's a key to, uh, it has been for me a key to, to lots of adventures and long may that be the case. Me too. Oh, awesome. So, sir, so given your time in the military and given all your work throughout uh, academics for yourself and others and, and for completing your doctorate and now working in higher education, which I'm sure we're going to talk about here, 
but can you tell us something that you see that uh, veterans are doing well currently in higher education? Yeah, I think it's best summed up by the fact that most, if not all veterans and academics that I've encountered demonstrate the same sort of resilience and tenacity that was either identified in them and therefore they're recruited to the military or attracted them to the military and was certainly developed, you know, re-inculcated and developed in the military. Um, you know, and it might be a slightly different tenacity and resilience than is needed in the military, but I'm not so sure it is. You know, it, it, let's take our doctorates. You know, they're not meant to be easy. I found mine tough. Right. But there was never any doubt in my mind that, you know, I was going to, despite all the knocks, despite all the hurdles, despite all the people telling me that I hadn't done this right, you know, not in, in, a, in a positive, supportive way. I hadn't done enough of this or I hadn't done enough of that. I hadn't, you know, wasn't right. quite demonstrating the, the, the doctoral uh, level yet. I thought, right, this is, this is, you know, it's a learning opportunity and I'm just going to get over those hoops constantly, a bit like an assault course in the military or whatever, you know, another brick wall. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's quite high, but we'll get over it together. Right. Um, and then suddenly you see the end in sight and you get over the finish line. You're a bit exhausted, but you're also exhilarated because you've, you, you've succeeded, you know, and there was never any doubt that I was going to get to that finishing line. And that's exactly what I see in other veterans. They, they, you know, they may come to a university environment. So I think some veterans, you know, arrive at the university environment um, with a bit of trepidation. Um, it's different to what may have been their experience before arriving at, at university. Um, but, you know, what, what I've always seen is that they will, they succeed. I, I've, I've, I've not seen a veteran that does not succeed at what they want to do in the HU environment, just like they're unlike, they were unlikely to have not succeeded in doing what they needed to do in the military. Right. Amazing. That's great because, you know, there's so much data in the United States now showing that uh, veterans are actually outperforming their peers and, yeah. they're, and they're doing them in majors that tend to be more rigorous uh, study than some of the other things that are available. And so I, I'm glad that you're, you're witnessing the same thing, that you experience the same thing, but you're also seeing that uh, in the UK because that, that's very powerful. Yeah, we are seeing it in the UK, but it's, it's anecdotal to the extent that we're not tracking, as far as I'm aware, okay. veterans' success in terms of qualifications in the um, university sector in the UK. I should point out that the, you know, the United Kingdom, as the name would suggest, and as your, your listeners will know, is, um, is made up of four nations, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And in each of those nations, there are different educational systems. So the, the, the policy and the management of education has devolved to those nations because that's where I've studied and that's where I'm working at the moment. You know, I, I hope that my colleagues in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland forgive me if what I'm saying only applies to England. I'm not trying to suggest that um, you know, Scotland isn't doing better than England. I think in many cases it is, if not in all cases. But certainly here in England, we're, as far as I'm aware, not sufficiently well tracking veteran or student veteran data to be able to prove or to evidence just as you are in the states that veterans are outperforming that's not to say they're not i'm going to give you an example uh, my colleagues and i recently um finished a master's student uh, who got 80 percent in their final dissertation the master's dissertation who had never as far as i'm aware had, hadn't studied an undergraduate degree so had not studied in higher education before you know arrived at the master's level thinking well you know how Am I going to succeed? How am I going to survive this if I've not already got a degree, an undergraduate degree? You know, we support that student and said, well, don't worry about it. All your military stuff, you know, 20 plus years, you've done millions of courses. Right. You're, you're no stranger to studying. Right. And this was an engineer as well. So, you know, technical courses, hardcore stuff, if you give, forgive the pun. Um, and lo and behold, with a bit of support, they did brilliantly in their master's and as far as I'm aware, they're, they're considering doing doctorate now, you know, so they are doing very well veterans here. We just need to make sure that we have the data to support that. Awesome. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, then that's good because there's potential, there's potential and maybe an avenue to, to start collecting that, that that's been well, identified. You know? we've, we've got to. Yeah. And we'll come to that, but that's what we need to work on. Absolutely.
Awesome. So Graham, now on the flip side of this, uh, can you tell us what is something that veterans could do better in higher education? Yeah, and I think I'll go back to the example I just said there, the student who came um, direct to a master's without having an undergraduate degree and was probably a bit nervous about whether, whether he would succeed or not. And so I think it comes down to belief. It's, it's belief that you can do it. Perhaps like you, you know, and certainly as an educator, you will have heard people say, well, I did terribly at school, you know, I can never do this. I'm, I'm just no good academically. I'm not a student, whatever it happens to be, you know, and I, I think that's rubbish. You know, we've all, if they're talking to me, then they've, they've learned how to talk, you know, that to master a language, even though it's your own native language, shows you can learn something. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I'd say the same students, I, I taught Spanish in, in the army and my students come to me and say, oh, I'm no good at languages, you know, I did terrible at school. Um, and I said, well, you, you know, what are we doing? We're talking. What language are you talking? English. Well, you've learned that. Yeah, but, you know, you learn it as a baby, did it, the rest of it. Yeah, sure, it's different. But you've already learned one language so you can learn another one so let's go for it and you know and by and large they did so it's that it's just it's just convincing it's just supporting these student veterans to believe that they can do it because as we said at the top of this show yeah i've, I've never experienced a veteran who does not succeed in academics at whatever level so they just need to believe they can and that's those are the myths that we need to debunk both among the veterans and in the wider higher education context. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that too, because uh, it is definitely a problem we need to tackle in higher education with faculty and administration, but also with veterans as well. Because uh, like, as you pointed out, uh, going through the language courses, some of the feedback the troops would give you, it's kind of like we're in this self- fulfilling prophecy of saying, oh, no, we're not going to be good at this. We can't do this. But the reality is, is so far from that, right? And I, and I think, and I'd say another point there as well, Luke, if I may, you know, it's never too late. And again, I use, I use my own example. I, I wasn't the best student at school, you know, so from, from secondary school level here in the UK, from the age of 11 to 18, you know, I wasn't really committed. I was having too much fun. You know, it was, it, it, I did all right. But I wasn't putting the hours out of school, you know, and I, I, I didn't really, you know, it's no, it's no fault of anyone but me, but I didn't really realize that actually to sort of succeed, you needed to do a little bit more than the teachers were just telling you in class, you know, <laughs> right. so I'd just go home and then completely, you know, sack off any, any what we call homework, you know, and, um, and learn, you know, and I managed to get through exams, but, you know, it wasn't brilliant. So I ended up with relatively poor results age 18 and there was only one university that took me um spanish and that was probably because when i went you know when i spoke to them i sort of displayed some sort of passion for the language and they thought well we'll take a bit of a punt on this guy you know and it was at university i realized well actually if i put a bit of effort in you know the results magically improve funny old thing <laughs> right. and and people respond to me a lot better i'm not getting told off you know by the by the teachers and um i enjoy it more and, and really it went from there, you know, but I, I will come on to this again, but then I, I joined the army and, you know, did lots of study in the army. Again, we'll come to that, but I didn't do the doctor until I left the army and I've only, you know, recently got that. So, you know, you don't have to do all, all your university education from age 18 to 25 or whatever and emerge with a doctorate. If it, you know, you can do a doctor. I had on my ED, I had someone in their seventies who had been a, a school leader uh, for all their career and had been rehired by the school after they retired to do a piece of research and turned it into a doctorate in education. Oh, I have no wow. idea what they're doing now, but you know, they've got a doctorate in education. Um, so it's never too late. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it, biologically, it, I think people often overlook, there's really two things that humans do automatically. We, we consume and we learn. Yeah. You know, yeah. If, if we're not learning, uh, our, our whole, our whole system, our whole, the way we input information in our senses and, and everything, we're, we're designed to, to learn. And if we're not learning, we're dead. And that goes back to the point we just said that, that, you know, it goes rather, it goes back to the belief issue. You know, as you say, we're constantly learning and therefore we're always learning. Um, you know, it, it, you don't, you don't touch a hot stove twice. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> Okay, so slightly sort of facile example, but you know, 
you, you don't you don't need to be aware of the fact you're learning not to touch a stove twice to know that you won't do it again you just learn that it's hot and it hurts therefore it's best to avoid doing it you know you're always learning is the point right absolutely absolutely so graham tell us tell us a little about yourself sir so what motivated you uh, to join the Army, what you've mentioned at a couple points, some of the things that you did in the Army, but please go into more detail with that. Yeah, I mean, possibly in common with uh, some, if not many of your listeners, I had some military connections in my family when I was growing up, um, and these were heavily influential on my decision to join the Army. Um, I, I should also mention my mum and dad were in the police, so the uniform services background was, was all around me. So that notion of sort of duty, you know, to society, to the nation, perhaps you know, a little bit of the glamour of the uniform um, helped. Uh, I'm not sure in retrospect it is that glamorous you know, but, uh, when you've worn it for several years, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it looked cool, put it that way. Um, and I should mention that, you know, I heard stories. A couple of my uncles were, one was in the Royal Marines and he was, you know, I, he, was, he was in exotic places, um, perhaps much like you in the US Marine Corps, you know, getting all the, the Gucci, as we say, postings. Um, and my other uncle was in the Royal Engineers in the army, um, and he had been to Belize, uh, he'd been to Cyprus, you know, what we call sunshine postings. And I, I heard all these sort of, you know, maybe that's what sparked an interest in Latin America, Belize. I know it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not a Spanish speaking necessarily sort of, or Portuguese speaking, uh, country, but, you know, it's still in Latin America, um, Cyprus, Mediterranean, you know, kind of connection to, to Spain, perhaps, you know, all these glamorous sort of postings. And then latterly he ended up in Germany and I went and visited him I was a teenager then so I went over there and visited him this should look really cool you know he's lived in a, an army garrison in Germany it I, I'd already discovered the joy of traveling you know as I said I went to Spain when I was eight and I thought this is you know traveling is brilliant um, you're learning loads you're eating different things the sun shines more you know what's not 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 to like and of course when I could drink beer you know I went to Germany and that was just full of amazing beer so that was kind of a, a big selling point um, so I thought okay well the army the, the, the military means that you can travel that's good they give you a nice house maybe not the case anymore but my uncle had a nice house we, we won't get onto that because there's a there, there are issues now about the quality of military housing that i don't want to get the brits that might listen to excited about so you know to take it back to the spanish thing as i mentioned i had uh, got a place at university to study spanish but because i'd done so poorly in my a levels advanced levels the the 18 sort of year old exams you do to get to get into university um it was all last minute so i'd i'd miss the place for the beginning of the, the next academic year so i took a year out and i went down to southern spain and was teaching english so I'd, I'd sort of i started teaching i started teaching languages albeit english um i was living in spain you know it was fantastic I, again the beer thing came into it the sun you know i was 18 it was just a fantastic life my first sort of proper experience of living away from home as an adult in inverted commas Went to university, you know, studying Spanish. That sent me to to Salamanca University in Spain. You know, the oh, beautiful one of the, one of the yeah, you know, lovely medieval city, if not you yeah. know, Roman bridge. You know, so way before medieval history. Um, fantastic city, a different bit of Spain um, for six months, and then the other six months of this extra year away that the Spanish course offered me was in Mexico, in UNAM, so the National Autonomous. University of Mexico in Mexico right. City so I was I think at that time it was the largest city in the world you know right. suddenly thrust into the largest city of the world again fantastic food and and beer and all the rest of it brilliant traveled all around Mexico went down to Guatemala went to Belize where my uncle served did a bit of studying as well Spanish improved um went back finished off the degree that was another two years left back in the UK thinking well, what am I going to do for career now you know I want to do something that means I can carry on traveling around the world speaking spanish hopefully um and having fun goes back to the fun thing you know every, everything <laughs> my whole career choice has been motivated by wanting to have some fun i joined the otc at university which is probably equivalent to your rotc you know the officer training corps for, right. for, for army guys in in universities and i thought this would get the army thing out of my system but in the last two years of the university course I started speaking to some army education officers who who knew I was doing Spanish and said, "Well, you know, we 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 want linguists in the in the branch because not only will you teach languages, but you'll be used for interpreting, and this means that you can you know be talking to Spaniards for your career or Latin Americans." Right. I thought, "Well, that's all right, you know." So, so the army is going to pay me, 
to, to speak Spanish and possibly travel there. What's not to like about that? And then, right, you know, I can, the family will understand it. You know, I might get a posting to Germany like my uncle. Fantastic. So <clears throat> I went to Sandhurst. Oh, I should mention that I grew up in the countryside as well. So I kind of, you know, lived in the woods and dug holes and all that sort of thing. <clears throat> so I went to the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is our only officer training um, institution. So like West Point uh, in the States. Um, you know, a year of digging holes and, you know, that was, that was kind of fun. Um, but then I emerged as a second lieutenant a year, a year later because you, in the UK, it's slightly different. You go to a civilian university. You don't have to, but you tend to go to a civilian university first and then do a year in officer training. You don't, you know, it's not like a combined undergraduate degree in officer training. And within six months, I find myself, sorry, I studied Portuguese as a subsidiary in, in university. So I left speaking Portuguese as well. And within six months of, of commissioning as a second lieutenant, I found myself in Angola, a former Portuguese colony in Africa, right. on a UN operation as a liaison officer. So, you know, age 23, 24 or whatever I was, <clears throat> joining the army in order to be able to speak languages. Okay, it wasn't Spanish, but I was speaking Portuguese on a right. UN operation, you know, doing, speaking to the government military forces, the, the sort of rebels as they were at the time, and they were trying to kind of, you know, bring them together and stop them fighting effectively. Um, and, it, and it was fantastic. And there was a Uruguayan um, infantry battalion down there. So I got to liaise with them. So I was doing Spanish, Portuguese, and, and, you know, and, and of course, English. And, and Living in Africa. To, li, yeah, and talking yeah, to yeah. all sorts of nations and learning about them, you know, learning from the Uruguayans about mate, you know, those nut, nut things that they drink. I don't know what you do with them. They don't drink tea, isn't it? Mate. Oh, <clears throat> oh mate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd never come across that before, you know. <clears throat> um, and um, living, just, it was just absolutely brilliant. So that was, you know, that was within, a, as I say, a, a year of leaving um, Sandhurst. I then, you know, I was involved in teaching soldiers on promotion courses, various other things, some operational roles in Northern Ireland. You're probably aware of the, the troubles they're called in Northern Ireland. There was an internal security role there. Um, <clears throat> a few other jobs. Ended up teaching Spanish at the Defence School of Languages. I would be wheeled out to, you know, when when... Spanish and Latin American um, chiefs of defense staff came over or, or politicians, you know, to, to be their kind of support officer to interpret. Went on exercise to Spain and Portugal with the Royal Marines and, and various other army units <coughs> and the Navy as a liaison officer. Um, and then progressed into educational management so I was running a bunch of education centers in Germany so I got to go to Germany okay good. Uh, you know where my uncle lived tick that box that involved you know a stint in Iraq you know that was slightly slightly different I was a CIMIC so civil military corporation again a liaison role but I don't speak Arabic so it was you know slightly different uh came after that where did I go oh yeah Italy I went to a NATO job in Italy so got to learn Italian got to live in Italy <clears throat> Again, a fantastic experience. Right. Went back to the UK. And then sadly after that, I mean, it's absolutely fine now, but I was diagnosed with bowel cancer. And with complications around that, I got medically discharged. So that was, you know, an entirely unanticipated and somewhat premature exit from the, from the army because I was, I was around late 30s at this point. You know, my, my, my contract should have had me serving until 55. So you know, a good 15 years or so still to go. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, my world fell apart. I wasn't expecting that. Right. And, you know, all of this good stuff that kind of seemed preordained and like, you know, the stars had aligned right. to bring all this stuff together, you know, the Spanish and the traveling and the going to Germany and the fun disappeared in an instant. Um, and the transition was really tough. The transition was really tough. Um, you know, I was totally unprepared for it. Part of my role in the army was to, was to support soldiers in transition, you know, the education piece. When it came to my own, you know, woefully underprepared. Um, you know, like a doctor who might tell you not to smoke and drink too much and do exercise, you know. I was telling people to get prepared, do this, do that. Hadn't done any of it myself. Um, so... 
you know, I, I, I don't want to turn this into a sort of issue around um, transition other than to say what that forced me to do was reflect on, the, on that experience and, and kind of be introspective, if you like, to try and work out why did I find it so difficult to transition? Right. What are the issues here? And what can be done about it? And that turned into the doctorate. And that was what my thesis was about. So effectively, it was an autoethnography. So okay. the auto about the self, ethno, a sort of cultural study, if you like, and graphy writing. So I wrote about my experience. <clears throat> and as I wrote about it, I thought, well, okay, it's, 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 this is more than just the military experience. You know, there's more to Graham Cable than just started in the army age 22 or whatever. And then, and then you know, got medically discharged at the age of 40 or whatever I was. There's other stuff that I bring to the party and there's other stuff, therefore there's going to be other stuff I can take into the future. <clears throat> so it ended up, and you can read the thesis, you know, I'm sure we can put some links in the, um, under the, uh, the podcast here. Perfect. But the central chapter is this story. And I think that did two things. That, that taught me that, that, you know, there are threads in my life that are enduring. You know, I've talked about the Spanish and I've talked about the education I've certainly talked about the military, you know, it pointed out to me that there's nothing I can do about the, my military career ending, you know, I'm not suddenly going to get put back in, well, I, you know, maybe I could have been, but, you know, I didn't see that as an option anymore, I wasn't going to get put back in uniform and join the military again, but I had that experience, and that had given me an awful lot of other experience, which I'd taken into the military, and that's why I joined, and so I realised that there are things that I acquired before that had been useful in the military, that had been developed in the military, and that Therefore, I could, I could use afterwards, you know, with the military experience in the mix. Um, education was one of those. You know, I'd been interested in education beforehand. And, I, and I, I forgot to point out that I grew up, aside from in the countryside here in the UK, next to the University of Kent, you know, a, a big university here in the local area. Okay. My mum ended up working there. When, in those days, when she had me, she had, you had to leave the police, you know, in the terrible old days when you got pregnant, you know, as a woman, you right. kind of weren't fit for service anymore. So you... So you had to leave. So she ended up working in the university and became an academic. You know, so I was exposed to that environment. I ended up working there in the bars, you know, funny old thing. There's, beer is, a, is a, a theme that runs through my life as well, you know. Banish and beer, uh, right? As, yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the two, the two go together very well, I discovered, you know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, so the university loomed, you know, literally lar large in my life from my earliest memories as well and I you know because uh, it was on a hill you know above the village where I lived um and it's a big institution so you know I was identifying these in the stories in in my in my thesis in the story in my thesis and then thinking okay so the military experience you know I enjoyed this that and the other principally the Spanish the traveling you know the teaching yeah okay getting ill and and being kicked out wasn't so great but there's nothing I can do about that so I've got to kind of I've got to put that to bed I've got to let that go Right. But I recognize experience was fantastic in many respects, you know, and it makes you stronger. You know, there's post-traumatic growth, which I'm sure is a, 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 a you know, sort of academic theme that many of your listeners will be, um, will, will understand. You know, you, you can learn from misfortune as well. So I put all that together and I thought, okay, well, you know, this, I'll come back stronger. These are the things I like. What am I going to do with it? You know, and, and that seems like a very long story. Now I've just sort of spoken about it, but to shorten it, to now which is the last sort of 10 years or so i got the doctorate and now i'm using that in the forces in mind trust research center which is part of the veterans and families institute for social military research in anglia ruskin university and therefore giving something back to the military community i hope which you know is something learning something from my own experience and of course my thesis isn't just about telling your own story you know i had to kind of balance that against the literature against the experience the broad sweep of veteran experiences across the across the board in the us you know uk canada australia um predominantly um and then and they say what's what what are the common themes here um and now that's what i'm attempting to sort of give back to the community you know some understanding of those common themes but i'm still learning as well you know i'm still learning about myself i'm still learning about the environment we're now working in. it goes back to what we're saying about you never you know you, you never stop learning and I love it because I'm in an environment now where I can give something back. I can continue learning. 
Um, and I'm surrounded by like-minded people, you know, people with military experience, but also in an academic environment. Fantastic. You know, so I've gone from a, a great career to a bit of a low point, a bit of reflection, a bit of regrouping, learning about myself. Well, how can I take this forward to, again, to a place that I, I love? So, you know. So, I, well, I'll say this. So it sounds like, you know, you, you were on a trajectory for a, a great military career and it definitely was fulfilling a lot of those things that you wanted, right? And uh, yeah. your transition was brought on by something that was completely out of your control. Uh, and I need to ask you, Graham, are, are is everything okay with you now as far oh, as- Yeah, no, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, sorry, no, it wasn't. I mean, that's why I wanted to gloss over it. Not because, you know, it, it upsets me, just because, it, you know, it, yes, it fought the experience of, of cancer wasn't great at the time. Right. But, you know, it forms part of the experience. And I think this is the, the, the point I was making as well, that, you know, the, the kind of post-traumatic growth, you know, it was a bit of a trauma, you know, both physical and psychologically. I wasn't right. wasn't too pleased about, you know, getting ill and getting kicked out of the army Absolutely. And, and having bits of my, you know, intestine carved out by very skilled and, and wonderful surgeons because they saved my life. But, you know, that, that wasn't a, a fantastic experience. But you, right. but by reflecting on that, you know, you, 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 you know, lots of stuff's going on. And this is the important thing about the, the story. And this is, this is really what a, another point I want to get across, that, you know, we have to learn about ourselves as much as we have to learn about the world around us. Absolutely. By, by laying the story out, you know, all this stuff, this maelstrom of stuff was going on in my head. You know, you know, I wanted to join the army. I now can't fulfill that career. The world has ended. You know, I'm not very well. Um, but, by, but by laying all of that out, you know, you could, you could create a sort of, you know, a thread, a line. You could, you know, I built it into chapters, if you like, from earliest experience all the way through. And you could see the common threads. And you could see that, yeah, there, was, there were ups and there were some downs. But you can learn from the downs because you've laid them out. You put them in their proper place, if you like. And, the part, and they might change the path but, that you anticipated. But there are plenty of other paths you can choose. You know, and by doing that, you, you, you can see a future. And now, you know, I am in, from having gone from a career I love to a low point, I'm now in a career I love again because I've, I've, I've sort of accepted that that, that that low point spelt the end of that chapter. You know, and it goes back to the writing. You know, I, I laid it on chapters. So that chapter is partially over, but there's lots of that chapter I can take forward into the next chapter. You know, the military experience, the Spanish, the education. You know, and now I find myself, and I... I I don't know whether the recording got this before, but I find myself in the Forces in Mind Trust Research Centre, which is part of the Veterans and Families Institute for Social and Military Research in Anglia Ruskin University here in the UK. So I'm surrounded by veterans who are academics, all pushing in the, in the same direction, all right. working based on our military experience, but with a newfound love for academics, helping the, the, the very people that we helped in service, i.e. our fellow soldiers in my case, you know, Air, Air Force uh, I was going to say airman. That's a contested word, you know, air person, but I'm not sure that's a, a thing. Uh, and naval person. Um, I don't want to be exclusive about the, uh, the service I came from, you know, because it's, it, it, we're here to help any service person. But actually, you know, the Veterans and Families Institute for Social Military uh, Research, um, it's about the families as well, you know, because the families have been on this journey too you know and they've sacrificed things and they've got resilience and they've got grit and they've got determination so we can't forget it's not just about the veterans you know we, we can't forget the wider armed forces community so that's serving personnel reservists who are serving veterans from both and the families of serving people and veterans you know partners children whoever who've been on this journey as well you know been around the world being posted from place to place in the us or uk or wherever it happens to be you know and and that they need to be factored into as well and that's and that's what we do if it weren't for my family and my low points or following me around the world as they did giving up an awful lot you know i wouldn't be where i am now so families are very very important in this space i now find myself in you i'm sure you'd agree in your space and also when we're serving so you know we we, we can't lose sight of the family piece as well absolutely absolutely and i think i think what the public, at least in this country, and it, it might be the same way in Britain, but uh, I think what the public really 
turns a blind eye to is we know to some degree when we sign up for the military, what we're getting ourselves into. I mean, we might definitely not know everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but we have some inkling of an idea. Our families typically do not, right? And just like you mentioned, there, there might be children of service members who have never grown up in the, in the country in which their nationality is. Yeah. You know, and, and people turn a blind eye to this often. Uh, but, you know, it's the type of enculturation that happens for these service member families is so different than many other, and the majority of the world's population. Yeah, and, and that word, and I love that word enculturation. I'm really glad you used that. That's what I used in my thesis. That's what I used to describe the process of transitioning into the military and by virtue of that, when you transition out, it's a re-enculturation process. You know, some people call it institutionalization. And that, you know, uh, I, I had to, I was forced by my supervisors and rightly so to interrogate those terms. Right. Um, and there's, there's a bit of a negative connotation about institutionalization. Um, and, and, and possibly rightly so. But actually, aside from that, I think enculturation is a, is a better term. And, and, and I sense you might agree with this because to join the military, you go through a process. Of, it is a culture, isn't it? You know, to, right, absolutely. To, 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 to do the crazy stuff that, you, that the military is required to do, you know, rightly, rightly, I was going to say, or wrongly, you know, because some people might think, well, you know, the stuff we do isn't always great. If you're on the absolutely. receiving end of it, right. if you're on the receiving end of it, it's not always great, let's face it. You know, so you, we can debate that. But, you know, in order to get people to do that, for whatever reason, you've got to, you know, you've got to change them a bit. And, and it, but it's not about, you know, I don't think it's about indoctrination, you know, because we're not, we're not sort of sitting down with headphones and saying, you will do this, you will do that. You know, it's a, it's a process of enculturation, you know, look after each other, you know, watch each other's backs, but act with integrity as well. You know, don't just career around the world acting like a, you know, a mad thing. You know, you have to sort of enculturate people into a, a culture of restraint, you know, and, you know, that takes a great investment of, of training, time, energy, and everything else, you know, and it's done in various ways, we know, through training, through, you know, symbolism, the flags, the, the right. nation, the, the loyalty, and it becomes instilled, you know, rightly so, it becomes instilled into your DNA, you know, and to suddenly switch that off, I don't know what it's like in the US, but, you know, you are in the military until midnight of the day, you are no longer in the military, and then you're a civilian. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and you know, and again, rightly or wrongly, when you're in the military, you're told, you know, the, arm, the British Army's strap line is be the best. Let's just think about that for a second. You know, it, fine. You want to be the best in the army. No army wants to be second best if you're in battle. Yeah, absolutely. It goes without saying. Okay. <laughs> right, right. You know, so I completely get that. But what does it say about the fact that when you're not in the army anymore? So what are you? Are you second best now? And, and particularly if you add that to the fact that you are leaving involuntarily, if that word exists, I think it does. It sounds right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, you, the arm is basically telling you, this is what I sort of said in the, in the thesis, rightly or wrongly again, you're no longer the best. You know, you're not fit anymore to serve. Therefore, you're not the best. So bye. And in a second, you know, once you've given in your ID card, your uniform, everything that screens i am a soldier you know that id card has your picture your num your service number your rank right your service you know your nation on it you you give that in that that is that encapsulates who you are and you have to hand it back over to the to the people that gave it to you so that suggested to me you've been lent that identity for a period of time right and then suddenly it's taken away from you or so it seems in your head when you become a civilian you know um, and that's really, really difficult. And it goes back to what I was saying about that really tough transition. You know, so those, those are some of the psychological things I was grappling with. You know, we traditionally think, and, it, and rightly so, you know, we must be prepared for the employment, the change in employment. You know, you've got all this experience in the military. And then when you go out, you need to get a job. Of course we do. We still need to provide for our families. We need to work, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a whole other piece that I think that, that is, is often less easy to deal with and prepare for. And perhaps because of that, not dealt with so effectively during transition, which is the psychological piece, you know, right. uh, we're getting better, but, um, but you know, that's, that's what I found really tough. 
Um, and I can't remember how we got onto this point now and what, why I was talking about it, but I've just gone off on one. So we, we were just talking about, uh, we started with transition and you were, you had gone back to mention, you know, your transition was not of your own choosing, Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. and, and then, but, you know, I want to say this, I want to say, it sounds like you, you had this point, uh, this high point of fulfilling your dreams and, and desires in the, in the military then you had this low point that was out of your control, right? Uh, yeah. So that there was nothing you could do. However, when you were in that valley, it sounds to me like you you gathered a lot of ammunition from that low point, but also from your your complete life history. Yeah. To now propel yourself forward and and not only complete the doctorate for yourself and you know for others, but now you're continuing that work on a much larger scale for others. Uh, yeah. And that's a, yeah. that's, that's a, be- a very beautiful thing. Yeah, and, and, and well, you know, and if I may say, you keep, you keep throwing in these beautiful phrases that, that stimulate me as well. I, you, you talked about life history, and I'm just going to park that for a second. I just wanted to say it so I didn't forget and lose my train of thought again. But the previous train of thought was based on enculturation. We're talking about enculturation into the military and then leaving it, you know, the, the, the enculturation piece to, to, to re- acclimatize you to, to civvy streets as we call it in the uk right. military right the, the to civilian world it is you know is minuscule in terms of the training yeah, absolutely compared to the training to enculturate you into the military you know and of course you know our ministry of defense doesn't want to it spends you know billions on training the military every year right it doesn't want to it doesn't want, you know it can't afford to spend billions on training you to become a civilian so i kind of get that but i still think we need to be cleverer and invest more in that retransition piece at that the other end the exact same in this country as well exactly and, and that and that's why we're all doing what we're doing you know because education is part of that we'll come back to that in a second but going on this on the on the cell the life history point you know and th- this is what i tell I, I i i want to invite more veterans to think about as well just as i had to do i had to analyze my life history in order to be able to you know get out of that valley and stop being fixed by the loss of my military career i need to sort of gather my thoughts and think about well, what was it that went before what happened in what are the things that i just got to accept but what can i take forward you know that that needed that story it needed to be in a linear fashion um and writing about it also and the research supports this means that you you kind of you, you have to interrogate it more profoundly than just talking about it right. or or just thinking about it um you know we, we all do that i'll go for runs when i need to think about something you, you kind of organize your, your thoughts in your mind um, but writing about them organizes, enables you to do it, you know, more. Um, we're talking. This is one way of getting the message across and helping people. But of course, in, in academia now, we need to write. You know, a thesis, need, well, at least all the theses I've seen are written documents. You know, you need to sort of structure your thoughts and your arguments and start at the beginning and get to the end and have made a point. Right. It's the same with yourself. You know, you need to structure your thinking, I think. And, and so you can shuffle it around, you know, delete things, move, you know, make sense of things and then come up with your conclusion. Now, in, in terms of a veteran's life story, a conclusion might be, well, okay, well, I started here, I got to here, where now? Well, this is, this is where I can go now because I've got this, this and the other. And this is, I know what I like doing because I've identified this in the story. So this is why I want to focus on. So, you know, not only do you learn about yourself and you can, you can almost accept some of the less favorable experiences like, you know, getting ill and, and being medically discharged, Right. You, can, you can focus on the strengths and the experiences and perhaps to bring it back to the more practical sort of nature of transition, um, you, can, you can use that to focus on careers that you might want to go, to, to go into. You know? So there is a practical element as well as a psychological element to this. And I think it's difficult. You know, sometimes we try and separate the two. Which, you know, it's an artificial separation, I think. Um, you know, right. The practical is entwined with the psychological and vice versa. Because if you go to a job that, you know, someone tells you you ought to do because you were in a particular part of the army, you may not be very happy there because you may have, you know, joined that part of the army because someone at the recruiting office told you, you know, had a gap and said, well, that's where you're going to go. Right. You might have enjoyed it, but if you'd had a choice, you may not have wanted to join the infantry. Right. I'm not sorry. I, I should have said I'm not saying anything against the infantry. It's just it seems, you know, the army is the largest part. Um, but you may have been told to go into the infantry because it's the largest part and therefore it needs the most recruits. But actually you might discover you, you fancy being a vet, you know, a veterinary surgeon. You could have right. been a, a vet in the military, but you didn't, right. you know, you didn't have that choice. So in, in, you know, by, by 
tracing yourself now you know in 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 looking at yourself narrative you might discover that um animals loom large in your your story you know care for animals enjoyment being around animals and that whilst you had a, a some great times in the military actually I fancy, you know, a career as a veterinary surgeon or something now, you know, and you might go into higher education to, to, to want to train to be a vet. So your second career might be something disconnected to your military career, but you've got to kind of, you know, do a bit of self-reflection and analysis in order to determine those things. Right. And I think that if you, you know, do that, your next career after the military might be more satisfying, if not, you know, it could be as satisfying if not more satisfying than the military career, because you've taken the time to do a bit of an audit, a self-audit. Um, and, you know, that's what we need to do, you know, because let's face it, you know, some of, some of the reasons why transition out of the military is difficult is because, you know, the military is a hyper kind of intense experience in some cases, you know. Right. You're young, you tend to be young, you're doing cool things, adrenaline-fueled. Um, that's not just because if, you know, you're on the front line or whatever, you get to, you know, your sports opportunities, your travel opportunities, all those sort of things are, are great. That's not necessarily, unless you get a cool job, the sort of thing I wanted to do in, before I joined the army, you know, travel around the world, just drinking Spanish beer or whatever. Right. There are limited careers in that, in that field, you know, let me tell you. <laughs> right. um, so you've got to find something else. unfortunate. But you wanna... I just want to point out that's yeah, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. It is very, yeah. I just, I think I just occurred to me, I need to apply to some Spanish breweries, you know, as their chief taster or something. But anyway, that's, that's for career 3.0. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, but, but you need to do that self-analysis to sort of, you know, discover your mojo again, you know, your purpose, your sense of purpose and motivation, because you can get that again, you know, and I'm really excited about what I'm doing now, as I hope you, you, you can hear. Um, but I had to, I had to, you know, work through the process to get to that. And, and often the first job we get out of the military isn't the one we end up doing. Yeah, it's right. the one that we we were told we have to do or the what the, you know we out of necessity we had to fall into something but by reflecting i think we can we can enjoy our civilian life as much as our military life so it's worth doing absolutely absolutely and graham i want you to tell us since we've talked about you know your your service and how it kind of bled into transition and then the transition into to what you're doing now at points Let's talk about what you're doing directly right now. Like, for example, um, I know you just published a paper with a couple co-authors. Yeah. Can, can you tell us some about the paper and then some about uh, the people that you're working with there in England? Yeah. Um, well, I understand that um, Daryl Cathcart uh, from Canada um, has spoken to you and yeah. his podcast has either preceded this one or, or be out soon afterwards. Um, but I met Daryl in King's College London, uh, a university uh, college, um, at a veterans conference, you know, a veterans research conference uh, before COVID struck and, and we couldn't do those things. Um, you know, we got on, we got on very well. And then I got this job and somehow we re reconnected. It might've been on one of the Zooms, you know, the international Zooms we've been talking about, but we got talking about the fact that the US is much further ahead of the UK and Canada in terms of the support offered to veterans in higher education. And we were lamenting the fact that, you know, that isn't the case in our countries. And so we decided to do a survey and, and Daryl's done a lot of work on this already. And I, I believe his thesis is, you know, he's, he's, he's finishing his thesis at the moment. So, you know, I'm sure you'll be Dr. Cathcart very, very soon. So he, so led by him predominantly, me and a colleague here in the UK, Professor Mike Almond, who I know you know from our from our collective Zooms, um, decided to put a paper together, looking at what you guys do in the States and what we need to do in Canada and the UK. That's got published, and we can put a link, uh, you know, at the bottom of this podcast, and people can have a look at that. But Mike and I, Professor Mike Almond, now in our institution, Anglia Ruskin University here in the UK, along with some other colleagues in the Veterans and Families Institute, uh, and now we've got the bit between our teeth, you know, and we're really, really energized about making Anglia Ruskin University armed forces inclusive. And I think that's, that might be the phrase that we, we use. We're still developing the ideas, but it goes back to the point that, you know, the armed forces community is serving regular and reservists, veterans from both and families, you know, and this is, this is, 
this is a, an untapped resource, really, because you know, all of that training and all of that experience that we get in the military is, is you guys have documented and evidence well in the US. You know, it costs billions of dollars, pounds, whatever, uh, to, to, to generate it among the armed forces community. You know, and the families are part of that as well. And then, you know, we leave and we don't exploit that in, in higher education. You know, we could, be, we could be getting these people into our institutions, uh-huh. accrediting all that experience and putting them, as, as my student showed on his master's, you know, putting through programs, you know, much of which or a part of which at least could be accredited towards what they learned in the military. So they don't have to come in. At, you know, as a fresh face, like I was, you know, 18 year old, 19 year old undergraduate. Right. Um, but they bring all that energy, all that experience, all that commitment, all that determination I, I, I spoke about into the higher education environment, not just the students, but the staff, along with their families, you know, and can succeed for themselves as they demonstrate time and time again, and as you've evidenced in the US, but importantly, see, uh, succeed for the, for the higher education uh, institute as well. So, will succeed as students, and that looks good, let's face it, but they, they, their experience is almost infectious for other students. So that kind of, you know, they bask in that, the other students can be, can be affected positively by that, um, by that glory. Not glory in the military sense, but, you know, that kind of hard work and that determination that, and that success. Um, but the start, you know, if you get members of the Force community on the staff as well, they can bring that passion and determination commitment to the to the to the to the engine of the of the university as well you know and i think i i'm not sure we've really sort of cottoned on to that in in england i don't want to say scotland because scotland are ahead of us and, and and wales and northern ireland are doing things as well which i'm not you know as familiar with um but we need to get better at that so we want to use our university as a sort of you know a test bed if you like for that um and so we're looking to your example in the u.s um, and, and we're and, and that you know that's that's a that's a particular focus of mine. But then we, you know I do I do other stuff in the day job as well. We we you know we produce research summaries and I can put a link to our uh, VFR hub um, here in the UK with lots of sort of re, uh, research um, linked to it. Um, we um, you know peer review uh, some uh, bids for for research funding. We review the um, peer review the output of that before it's published. Um, and we publish our own journal articles that we've just spoken about. You know, we've just want, done one, uh, my colleague led on it, on um, the female experience of mental health care as a veteran, you know, because there is a difference between the male experience and the female experience. And again, we can put a link to the paper. So we're looking at that sort of thing. And, and just recently, we're looking at the support needs of carers of veterans who are receiving mental health treatment, because we know a relatively large amount about the, the needs of the veterans that are, are receiving mental health care support. We, we know next to nothing, if not nothing, about the needs of the carers, the family carers. Right. So again, it comes back to the, 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 the families. So we're looking at that as well. So, you know, that and a bunch of other stuff. And there's also, you know, as you know, we're always sort of running around, not just double, but triple, if not quadruple and beyond hatted. Um, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, an environment that's busy and full of energy, but we all want to work hard. We do work hard in it. And that's, we succeed. that's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, yeah. That, and you know, that's the frustrating thing about being, uh, illuminating yourself to these situations is you realize there's always work to do, right? That's yeah. The, but then that's the positive <laughs> because there's always work to do. Yeah, and we're we're our own worst enemies because we're always we always want to do it, and we're right. always got another. Right. We're buzzing with ideas, and we we want to do this, and we want to do that, you know. And uh, yeah, you can get carried away, and it can become a bit overwhelming sometimes. But you know, again, that I think the military skill of sort of stepping back and just assessing and and you know, prioritizing and and fighting the battles that you can win as opposed to the ones you can't are a useful attribute that we bring with us. Very awesome. Very awesome. So Graham, as we start to wrap up here, is there anything that's looming on the, on the near horizon for you? Is there anything we, the public can expect to see from you? Um, well, there'll be more papers. Uh, on, a, on a personal level, I'm working on something that 
relates to what we've talked about here. You know, my experience of that self-reflection uh, um, through, you know, writing down the good and the less good in terms of that transition experience and, and, and taking it right back to my earliest memories, you know, work charting why I joined the military, what drew me to it, what other, as I said, what other skills I bring to the party, how that was developed in the military and what I can take forward is something that I think other veterans can benefit from. So I'm trying to, I'm creating a series of, um, of e-learning modules, if you like, which I'm going to host on my own website and I'm, and I'm going to, um, uh, launched onto the unsuspecting now hopefully suspecting public because I've just talked about it in the near future um, and again you know I'd like to include a link if we can you know underneath yeah, this so people can look at that uh, and hopefully what I've said you know might resonate with people and they might have a look at this because I, I really do think it it certainly helped me and I, and, I, and I like to think it will help others so it comes back to wanting to constantly help others you know the veterans community um, be that in supporting them in HE, giving them the belief they can succeed, allowing them to succeed, creating the environment that, that they can succeed in. Um, but also just, you know, beyond that, life. And I believe, you know, I found a way of helping that that isn't necessarily used. Uh, and I want people to use it. You know, we, we, we're surrounded by stories. Let's face it, you know, adverts are stories. We right. tell each other stories. We come home from a day's work. I mean, how's your day? You tell a story of the day. You know, we're less good at thinking about our own stories. It takes a bit of effort, but we can learn an awful lot about ourselves that's of great use. And I want other people to, to discover that for themselves. Absolutely. That, that, that's amazing. And I could not agree more. And you know, I think there's something, there's research, cognitive research that shows too that when you are almost like a metacognition, you know, when you're thinking about how you're thinking about your experiences, you have to flesh these things out in more detail, yeah. so much so that it is shown to improve long-term memory. And so, the the very the very act of this is is something that is also just beneficial for us as a species. You know, I, do you know what I hadn't come across that research, but now I know it. So that's another that's another sort of underpinning facet of the the, the story I want to tell and the message I want to send. Um, yeah. Uh, if that's the case, then more power to it. And, you know, I think it's a very, very powerful tool that we can use and much underutilized, too, too underutilized, um, you know, and, and writing it, as I say, is another way of deepening that thought process. And, and so it doesn't surprise me to hear about the research you just mentioned. Absolutely. Um, and I, I yeah. think, like you mentioned, writing it is key because you really do, instead of just opening your mouth and words coming out, you really do put thought into each yeah. one of those words and sentences and you might go back and restructure them and and that I think you know like you mentioned that's just part of the real process of getting really deep you know and, and getting into those details that you might gloss over in a conversation and you don't realize it and I, I mean I, right. I you know and, and it and it takes reflection and, and you know I'm, I'm not saying that don't talk to people because clearly you know it, <laughs> right, writing right. Yeah, right. writing is just one way of doing it but you know you all know as an educator you know if you're teaching something if you're if you're appealing to as many senses as possible talking you, you, you sh you're showing someone the, the object you're talking about you're allowing they're touching it uh, and, and they've read something beforehand to cue them into it and then they go and write about it or discuss it in a seminar or whatever it's to be you know you're deepening that understanding of that experience by by appealing to all sorts of senses so you know writing is one means of doing that and talking is the other but i'll give you an example i was talking to someone in in our university the other day and, and it was it was you know one of the, this these career um career mentoring sessions where they ask you about what your aspirations are and i said well you know i'm doing this that and the other and but i you know i haven't yet got enough experience in academic i don't think to do this he said, well, tell me about your military experience. I said, well, I did this, and I did that, and I managed this, and I managed that. And he said, well, yeah, I don't think you'll have any problem managing a large research project. You've managed, you know, soldiers and operations in, in Angola or Iraq or whatever. I went, yeah, maybe you're right. So it, it, it's belief, you know, and it, yep. and, but it takes that reflection to, to demonstrate that to yourself. Absolutely. You know, and you can do that yourself by writing but you also need to talk to people and learn. It's all about learning and belief. It comes back, 
comes back to what we've been talking about throughout this podcast. So, so, so true. So true. Well, Graham, this is, this has been marvelous. And I tell you, uh, the guests, guest, when we release this episode, we're going to add a link to uh, Graham's paper that we discussed when we got into his work. And then all uh, we'll have links to other work that, that Graham is currently working on. And then anything in the future that he wants to share with us, we'll also make that available to everyone. So Dr. Cable, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure and my honor, um, you know, and, and talking through these things with you, as I said, it helps me remind myself of all the, uh, all the aspects we've been talking about, you know, and, 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 and believe in them. And, you know, both of us, we just want other people to. So it's been an absolute honor to, to have had this opportunity to do that and, and all power to us and, and the other veterans listening and anyone else listening, you know, invest in us, believe in us, and believe, above all, believe in yourselves, veterans. Can I just add one thing? Uh, yes, sir. If, if this appeals to anyone, quite apart from visiting the links that, I, that uh, you'll kindly include, Luke, you know, if anyone wants me to talk at their universities, you know, I'm quite happy to go over to the States or indeed for any of the uh, Spanish speakers there to any of the Latin American nations that we've, we've talked about. I'm on for visiting professorships or whatever it happens to be. Find me on LinkedIn, follow me on Twitter, look at me up on the Anglia Ruskin University website, drop me an email. I'll be more than happy to talk to you either as individuals or institutionally visit you and, and connect with you. I, you know, I'm into traveling. I'm into connecting. I'm into talking, as I think you've gathered. Let's do more of it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Everybody, you heard it. Graham's available. Snatch him up. I think after this episode, people are going are to be knocking on the door soon because they're, they're gonna, we're going to get you the exposure. Wonderful, sir. Listen, Dr. Cable, it's been an amazing time talking to you. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Dr. McLeese. I keep, you know, you've, you've been so kind to be formal with me. I'll round it off in that respect as well. Respect to you as a fellow doctor of education. The Eddies win, like your first lady. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think she did it inspired by RC. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, everyone. So today we have been uh, we have been joined by Dr. Graham Cable of England, and I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese. And until next time, this is Veterans and Academics. Thank you for your support. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McLeese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.